Welcome to devmode.fm, a podcast dedicated to the tools, techniques, and technologies used in modern web development. I'm Jennifer Bloomberg from Next Solutions in New York. I'm Andrew Welch from NY Studio 107. And I'm Patrick Harrington from Mildly Geeky in Boston. And today we're going to talk about the internet. Dun, dun, dun. It's kind so of a big thing. I, it's a big thing. I, I hear it's still relevant. Oh. I have a question I'm going to pose to both of you. It's a scenario. Oh, a non, it's a non-COVID friendly scenario. All right. So if you're, oh. trying, you're trying out hot yoga for the very first time, you know the kind where you're dressed in a Speedo and sweating buckets and grunting and pain oh, that hot yoga stuff that nobody wants to see anyway yeah continue <laughs> so you're balancing on one leg oh and the lady next to you says hey you know i was just thinking the internet has changed our civilization so drastically but it seems like magic to me can you explain how it works it's a series of tubes <laughs> it's not a dumb truck series of tubes yeah it's a a worldwide network of computers all talking each other talking to each other not even computers in the sense anymore because it's also devices it's microwaves it's washing machines Uh, well yeah Yeah. you don't have a wi-fi microwave now no i don't everything everything internet of things but i mean literally if you want to get literal about it yeah the the internet is a network of networks like that's literally what it is Mm. so if you think about it there used to be you know when networks were first invented and they had ethernet and all that kind of stuff running the big thing about Ethernet, and I think it was somewhere in California that they first set it up. I think it was a link between two colleges or something like that. But basically what they did is the first tests of it were linking two networks together. And so that's really what it is. I mean, the internet is a way of linking networks together. You may or may not think of it this way, but your home is a network. All the devices that you've got on there is a network. And then you've got a router that bridges you out onto the internet that connects your network to other networks. And that's that's really so, what it is. So is that stuff, is that, that's up in the cloud, right? Like up there? It's up there. It's out there. It's actually in the ground mostly, but yeah. It's in the ground. So there's machines somewhere. There are that machines are just everywhere. Other machines. There are machines. Have you seen Battlestar Galactica? The Cylons are going to take over as soon as they are <laughs> sentient for sure. It's happening. That's really interesting. By what mechanism are they communicating with each other? Th- through microwaves? Packets. Radio waves? Packets. I've heard I believe, of packets. I don't know. I, I, I am here to learn today. I, I don't fully understand. I know there are requests and responses, HTTP codes end up moving around. I didn't know. The teacher didn't tell me what homework I need to do mm. ahead of time. So I didn't research any of this. But the two major protocols that are used on the internet are TCP and UDP. And the, the most commonly used is TCP, which is a, God, what does it stand for? So I, I did look this up right before because I used oh, okay. the internet to look up oh. the internet. It stands <laughs> for Transmission Control Protocol. That's right. Yeah. Is and, that the one where it says, hey, I'm sending you a message and you say back, hey, I received your message, but then no one ever says, hey, I received your message where you said I received your message? I know there's like a joke about that. The general is trying to communicate across the ravine. No? Well, the main thing about TCP in, mm-hmm. and there, there, <laughs> there's a lot of complexity to it that I'm simplifying. But the main thing about it is that you, when you send out a packet, you will guarantee that it's they're going to get there in the order that they were sent out. And so it does a whole lot mm-hmm. of managing of these the protocol behind the scenes to make sure that that happens. Now UDP is a protocol where you're really you're literally just blasting packets out there, and there's no kind of error checking or error recovery. They will arrive in different order. It's up to you to reassemble them. All that kind of fun stuff. Back when I was doing some 
internet-based games, we were using UDP as a way to communicate with the games because TCP was too high latency. Hmm. And, you know, especially over long distances, things were just wasn't working. So we're using UDP to do it. The interesting thing about this and the way I'm going to connect these together is historically, HTTP and HTTP2 has been built on TCP IP, the protocol. The new HTTP3 is built on top of something called Quick, which is from Google. And that actually uses UDP under the hood for the exact same reasons that I was mentioning we were using it back when we we're doing internet games is that there is a lot of overhead in TCP and you can make something that's a lot quicker if you use UDP and optimize it for whatever task there is that, that needs doing. Okay. So that's interesting. I feel like we started talking about packets and protocols, mm. but I'm still not at the level of understanding that I can visualize what those are and what they're doing. So maybe let me just ask. So if I go and I take my fancy new M1 MacBook and I open it up and I open up Google Chrome and I type in devmo.fm into the browser and I hit enter. Well, what what's happens? happening? Yeah. <laughs> what's my computer doing to send signals up to the to the cloud to bring me the devmo.fm website? I mean, depending on how pedantic you wanted to get about it, we could be here all day because the, no, I mean, I'm serious. You get down to the OS and how that works and does it yeah, have a DNS I mean, cache? And we'll just like of, break it. Like, like we're in a yoga class here. So like, I just, yeah. like, I want to know, you oh know even metaphorically, like if you can explain it in terms of metaphors, just so a, think, the basic, but like try to hit everything, but let's not go into how the MacBook works and all that stuff. So think of a packet as a literal packet, like an, an envelope that yeah, you might put, okay. that you might put a written message into. So the concept content that you're sending out is the letter that goes in the envelope. And then there are headers on each packet that say, where is it going to maybe an error correction on it to make sure that you know that it's in the right state when it gets there. Got it. So it really, that's why it's called, they're called packets because it's almost like a literal packet yeah. of stuff. And then it is wrapped in this wrapper, which is the headers that are going along with it. And that's what ends up getting transmitted. What's now, an example of a header? A header would be like, how long is the stuff that I'm sending? Any encoding information on the stuff that I'm sending, any error correction, like what they'll do is they'll they'll basically do a checksum of all the data that's in there and they'll add that to the header. And then when it's on the receiving end, you can verify that checksum to say, oh, the packet here is okay. Or in, in the physical world, an example of it would be, I don't know, maybe the dog mangled the letter and you can't, can't read it. <laughs> you know what I mean? That can happen with packets that are transmitted too. So that's what the header is on these packets. It's just a little bit of state information. You can think of it as an address on an envelope to make sure it gets where it's supposed to go. Well, how does it know where it's supposed to go? Does devmode.fm have, you know, a computer up there in the cloud? That's the devmode computer? Oh, God. There's so a, where, where are we hosted? Are we on AWS or DigitalOcean? We are on Linode, actually. Oh, I didn't even know that. I wouldn't have been surprised if you said we were on, know, my <laughs> children just fell. So we're on Linode. I, I, I don't know. I just assumed we were on one of the NY Studio servers li li living in your rack. I didn't know we were on Linode. Yeah. So, I mean, when you type in devmode.fm and there are a few ways it can go about doing this, but it has to pair that name to an IP address somewhere because, as Andrew just said, there is a Linode virtual uh, VPS, virtual private server somewhere on theirs, and it'll be listening for something to come across the wire, looking for devmode.fm, but we need to find our way there. That's 
where we get DNS and our DNS records. So we're able to say, hey, whenever someone's looking for devmode.fm, send them to whatever it is, 37.123.whatever.whatever. That gets put out there and propagates across a number of other DNS providers and ISPs. And I don't know who else holds those at the edge network so that we can grab those within milliseconds. And then your computer might actually keep a copy of that locally, which if you've ever tried to switch over a website from an old host to a new host, you're like, why isn't it coming up? It, it, it takes a while whenever you change those records, that kind of you know, almost like phone book of where all these different websites live. You know, it takes a while for those to change and they may, may even be cached locally on your computer, but that'll pair it up with an IP address. I'm, I'm remembering back, I think it was like on the Today Show of people asking like, what is internet and what's the internet phone number for email? We'll have to put that in the show notes. <laughs> but yeah, that kind of pairs a web address or a, a name to an IP. Okay, yeah. so it's kind of like your computer asks the operator how to translate the dev mode address into an IP. And that operator asks, maybe it knows, or maybe it asks another operator, another operator, and eventually gets to... It'll the get D- that number. It'll say, oh, they, they, oh yeah, they live right down the road there at 37.123, whatever. And then comes the fun part because then you're, and I don't know how this happens, but they just start hopping. They just start hopping from one server to another, trying to find their quickest way there and back so they can get your request, these packets that you're requesting saying HTTP location is slash, you know, episode 132 or whatever we're recording today. Hey, I've got this urgent request for this IP address, which you know is supposed to be dev mode. And I mean, if you get into your computer, you can even do like a trace route to see what's the path that these packets are taking from server to server. And I have to say, just to pull out of this, it blows my mind how this all happens in milliseconds and basically rarely if ever breaks. I, I It blows my mind. <laughs> well, it is held together with spit and glue. But so I want to yeah. add one thing to that, what we're talking about in terms of when you type something into your address bar, what has to happen is somehow that human readable name has got to be turned into a number, which is what we're calling an IP address. And there are different kinds of IP addresses. There's IPv4, which we've basically run out of space for. So now we're using IPv6. doesn't matter. It's got to be turned into a number. So what has to happen? The first thing that has to happen is it has to find a name server that is responsible for serving up the this translation for you. Okay. And let's just say we're starting totally dry. There's nothing cached anywhere. It's going to hit what are called one of the root name servers. And what that will do is it will look up and it'll say, okay, who is responsible for this domain name? And then it will ask, okay, you, this other server that is responsible for this domain name, give me the address of this thing. And then it will be returned back to you. And that's how it will come back down. Usually on most systems, then you have a local cache of this stuff so that the next time that you ask for the same address, it'll say, oh, I know what that is, and it'll just return it to you. But then there are layers of it beyond that. So your ISP will also have a DNS server that will cache this stuff. And there'll be layers all the way up. So there are short circuits in terms of how this will come down. But one of the most interesting concepts about all of this, I think, is the idea of the the root name servers. If those, (laughs) I think there are only a few of them in the world. I mean, if someone took those out, we're we're doing no communication. (laughs) Nothing is happening. Yeah, Yeah. so there's just a few machines, servers sitting around the world whose sole job is to just tell you what what address is what name. And so you just unplug those machines, then the internet just stops working. Yeah, pretty much. But the good news is lots of people have a vested interest in that not happening. So, and we're, and I'm probably oversimplifying it. It's, I mean, it's not just going to be like, you know, a box sitting in the corner of the server and oh, whoops, I didn't mean to unplug that one. You know, I mean, I'm sure there are very sophisticated virtualized servers these days, but 
And then once you have that address, though, so you're asking about like, how do the packets get from one place to another? Mm -hmm. So what they do is, yeah, they, they hop from router to router. And every router has a routing table that tells it how to translate these numbers that are coming in and where the next place is, like the next place to go. And in theory, it can be dynamically routed. So if there is an outage that it would normally take this path, just like if you would normally drive this way to work and that path is blocked, then it can route around it. And it sometimes works, but we've also seen outages from major providers that you would think it could route around, but the internet just stops sometimes. Okay, so I guess data is traveling literally, quite literally in packets through an Ethernet cable or some sort of wireless, magical wireless protocol that I don't understand. I guess, for example, if I am looking up a website in Europe, that server is over there in Europe. The internet has to go from here to Europe. How does that, how does it get there? Mostly undersea cables. Underwater cables, which get cut every so often. And it's a little bit surprising because no one quite knows who's doing it. Could be Russia, could be China, it could be someone else. So it's just like the packets are flying along a wire. It's a megalodon. It's a huge, one of those ancient sharks that's in the water and just chomps (laughs) them every now and again. No, you'd be shocked. Yeah, yeah. We should put it in the show notes, but actually those cables and the technology behind them and how they do it. And I'm not going to pretend to be able to understand it all here, but look them up. They're amazing. The cables are monstrous and they've got incredible redundancy built into them Mm -hmm. because it's super expensive. And then also just the way that they string these cables along, it's pretty incredible. It's a a wild, you're right. Like it's wild that any of this stuff even works. One one thing I enjoy doing, you kind of got to the there like, I'll be standing next to my wife somewhere and I'll text her something, you know, a silly little link and I'll stop for a second and say, man, I just typed this in. I hit a button, the, the code in my phone, then sent that to the modem in my phone. That sent it to an antenna somewhere, you know, around the block. That then went wired back towards T-Mobile. That went to Apple. That came back. That found her phone and pinged it <laughs> to wake up and get all this so I could send a little text message two feet away from me. And it all happened in milliseconds. I it I, we don't appreciate how amazing this is. I feel yeah, just just so Patrick can send rude mo- notes to his wife. That's I wonderful. Do. Yeah, Patrick. they're very yeah. inappropriate. Yeah. And actually, even more, even more that. amazing if you want to think about it. And I don't want to divert too much from this, but the route that this little spark of a thought that starts in your brain and travels through your body and causes you to actually type the stuff is even more incredible than the route that the internet takes. Like it's as mind blowing <laughs> as the internet is in terms of the way things connect and the way data is sent and all that. It's fair. I mean, our, our bodies are even more incredible in terms of the way that all works. Mm. That's amazing. We should discuss on another episode whether or not we have free will. <laughs> but Get Brandon just, Kelly on. He has thoughts about that. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to resist the urge to play a sound clip of dial-up modem, but... I remember it well. We should put that in the show notes so people remember that now we have undersea cables, but before we had these dial-up modems. Thinking if you very quietly hung up when you accidentally picked up, maybe it wouldn't notice that you had picked up the phone. Yeah, all you whippersnappers that don't know any about this, but we used to have a modem that would literally go over your regular telephone line, not a cellular line, okay? And if your mother picked up the phone while you're on there, she'd hear like that and you'd be in the middle of this massive download and it would disconnect and you'd have to start all over <laughs> massive again. download a 200 kilobyte jpeg yeah well but yeah. it would take like an hour to oh download. i know i remember it was a big day when we went from a big day we went from a 28a to a 56k modem and i'm like oh i'm doing the math this will all be really quick and it, it never actually went 56 oh my god patrick we're actually like super old look, look at us yeah. we're just like you guys don't know how good you had it <laughs> like, oh my god well okay so i, I think i understand when i type in devmo.fm it gets 
it's goes through a few machines to translate that into some address. And then it magically just brings me what I requested. But like, how did I request that? Like, what is this HTTP thing that just got stuck onto the beginning of my query? Like, what does that mean? Do I need to know about that? So that's the, the prefix there. The HTTP is the protocol because over TCP IP, which is another protocol, there are any number of different service level protocols that can be running. So FTP is another, SSH, is another, like there are any number gopher. of protocols. Gopher. Gopher, like yeah, there are any number of protocols that can be going under. And basically all it means is it's saying, this is how I'm going to communicate with you. So when you say HTTP, it's saying I'm communicating with you using the hypertext transport protocol. And it's basically just saying, okay, here's your here's the way that we're going to communicate. The rest of the data that's coming is going to be communicated using that protocol. And it's essentially all it is. Yeah, developed by Tim Berners-Lee back in uh, 1989. If you remember him from the 2012 Olympics over in London, they actually had him as part of the show, which I thought was pretty cool. Did he throw uh, a javelin or something? Or No, no, he just like sat there on a computer and they're like, look at him. Look at his, he's That's still lame typing. for an Olympic though. Come on. <laughs> it, was the, it was the opening ceremonies. They should have him at least jump or run or something. <laughs> I, don't think you he, I don't think, you know. He's, okay, he's so Tim Berners-Lee invented the World Wide Web, but not the internet, right? The internet no, the internet predates. I think that was DARPA originally and or Al Gore. But no, he, <laughs> came up with, he came up with HTTP and eventually the World Wide Web. And I think HTML, I think, was really kind of the, the very early versions of HTML, which interestingly, when we get into HTML in a minute, was originally supposed to be a, a two-way document system where yes. not only could you link to everything, but you would see everyone who had ever linked to you, which, man, that would be, imagine like a world where you could actually see that right within. But that's uh, a great yeah. that's a great distinction to make, Jennifer, is a lot of people are like, the web is the internet. No, it's not. It's a very popular way that a very popular protocol that is used on the web, but the web is the actual transport system. So yeah, an incredibly resilient. Yeah. Given, yeah. To, what, so to use an analogy, the internet is sort of like our road system, our highway system in the United States. And then these different protocols that are running on it are the various things that are driving on that, you know, like the trucks and the cars and all that kind of stuff. Those are the different protocols that are running on top of the internet. But, you know, you're talking about HTML and HTTP. Project Xanadu is another really interesting thing. If anyone has ever has a rabbit hole they want to get into. We shouldn't get into it now. But Project Xanadu was a hypertext system that the idea was to basically index and cross-link all of human knowledge all over the place. And there would be ownership and authorship of documents and they would be deeply embedded. So whoever owned the canonical source document, if they updated it, it would replicate everywhere. It was almost like a, a global Wikipedia in a way. It's pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. Okay. Well, I guess I typed in HTTP. That's saying that we're going to use this protocol and and I send that information to these magical machines that are connected and it's going to give me something back. What is the thing that it gives me back? And how does it make this beautiful website on my browser? Could give you back an HTML document. It could give, give you back JSON, a JavaScript uh, ordering notation or object notation. There are a number of ways that we can get back. We can start with HTML, which goes back to the very early 90s, which it's a, a way of marking up originally then a document that would give you some information in the head about what is on the page. And then and I actually, when I'm explaining to people, I almost show them in Microsoft Word, you can see heading one, heading two, heading three, mm -hmm. different sizes of headings and paragraphs, unordered lists, ordered lists. That was kind of the very first HTML. 
CSS cascading style sheets are, are code that the, then lets you give it color and placement and shape and animation. And it pairs all of those together to then bring something into your browser, at least for the very beginnings of what a web page is. I want to take a slight step back, though, because when you type this in, what you're actually getting back is a stream of TCP packets. Like, that's what's <laughs> coming back in. No, yeah. I mean, it makes sense because we're talking we're about, about it from... We're getting critical CSS, aren't we? No, no, no. We're talking about it from a fundamental level. What happens is the response you send out goes out as a series of TCP packets that go to wherever they go. And the server on the other end that handles that protocol, like you'll have an HTTP server that listens on a specific port for that protocol. It will interpret whatever your request is, and then it will send a response back. But when that response is sent out, it's not just like a file is sent, okay? The file is chunked up into a number of TCP packets that then get sent over to you. And because of the way TCP works, they'll always be guaranteed to arrive in order and they get assembled. And then once they're assembled, then you have whatever the document type is that was retrieved. And you'll, you'll see like the MIME types and there'll be an encoding header on it to say, this is how this thing was encoded all that kind of stuff, then your browser can do something potentially with this glob that is returned. But what comes back is a stream of packets. Like it's all packets running everywhere. So sometimes go to a website and I don't get back anything. I just get an error. Is that my fault or is it the server's fault or who's what's going on there? I mean, it's definitely your fault. Probably. (laughs) Web developers, we don't make such errors, do we? But I mean, is it the server or is it just something that the packets got hijacked on the way? What's going on there? Uh, turn is it, it me? off and turn it back on again. I don't know. Is so it sometimes me? Is works. it you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then the errors have these different codes and you're like, well, what is this code? And like the 500 level errors, that's really bad. 400 level ones are kind of sort of bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 500 means it's a system error. Typically, this is a system, some outside application, whether it be a craft CMS site, a Words, WordPress site, a big WordPress Java, site. Big Java ah. behemoth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> saying actually it's on our end. Something broke really badly. You asked us for, for something and maybe it was you, maybe it was us, but some Thing is just not running properly on our end of things. That's kind of what the 500 series are reserved for. 400 means essentially not found or not authorized. 410 is a really funny one where it says gone. Like, yeah, it's gone, but don't ever expect it to come back. A 300 series is typically some sort of a redirect, which it's going to respond with a location says, actually, you asked for slash foo, but it now lives at slash bar. Your browser will then see that and recognize that and send a new request for slash bar. And 200 are different ways of saying, hey, it's okay. There are someone, some that are saying 200, here it is, or 206 maybe is like a chunked reply, meaning maybe it's some media file that's too large to send in any sort of reasonable amount of packets. And so it's going to come in a, a number, of, a stream of pa- a stream of responses. But yeah, it, it, they respond back with these status codes to give your browser an idea of what to do. And if you end up in 400 or 500, it might be their problem, might be your problem, but yeah, turn it off and turn it back on again, you'll be good. So we talked about the fact that TCP packets have headers on them that describe some of their content. HTTP protocol stuff that's being sent out over the wire also has header information in it. And one of those things is the HTTP status code of the response of what's coming back. And this is all defined in the HTTP protocol, right? So the HTTP status codes that are here, you know, if you're if you're dealing with like FTP, none of these mean anything. They're they're specific to the the dialect of HTTP. And my my favorite one is uh, 418 which is, does anyone know what HTTP status code 418 is? 
Anybody? For my life. Anybody? Are you looking it up, Patrick? Oh, of course now I am. And All I right, do know see. this now that you... Yep, yep. All right, what is it? Let everybody know. I'm a teapot. That's right. <laughs> uh, the HTTP 418 <laughs> on error face. response code indicates that the server refuses to brew coffee because it is permanently a teapot. I yeah. respect that. I don't like coffee. I much prefer tea. How but I've never had that error code. I like How do I both. get that error code? April Fool's joke. It's a long nerd humor, 70s, I think. But it's actually pretty interesting history. And we should probably link to the Wikipedia entry in it. But it basically boils down to like someone was making a joke about putting a coffee pot on the Internet, which is hilarious because it's exactly what people are doing now. Oh, that'd be so much better. And then it just went too far, basically. And it's just it's enshrined as a permanent part of the protocol. So do, do you need to define your like if you're making a website, do you need to define these yourself? No. Like if those are they're just predefined. Yeah, they're all there. And it's just a way for communication to work between client and server using the HTTP protocol. Yeah, and it's funny you use the word server. So one thing, a very basic website could just be a folder of HTML pages, CSS, mm-hmm. JavaScript, maybe. We'll, we'll talk more about JavaScript, but a piece of software that lives out on this either computer or, or virtual public server, a, a computer or virtual private server might run some software like Apache or Nginx uh, or Express. And that's going to do a lot of it for you so that when someone calls up, asks, you know, calls up. I want to do actually like the Sandra Bullock movie, The Net Now. I, not, I love like old where like people were just figuring out internet and trying to explain it in early media. Again, we'll link to some of the show notes, but you know, your server will do that for you. It'll give a 404 or a 200 or maybe maybe even a 301, depending if you've set those rules up. Your server could do that for you, or if your server, so if that Nginx server or Apache server is then talking to a program like Craft or WordPress or whatever, you may then be able to get in and specify, actually, here's the status code I want to send back. I don't like how they formatted that request over to me. Maybe they sent a little blob of of JSON logic in the request, and it's not correct or it's unauthorized. So I want to specifically tell them that, hey, that's a 403. That's an unauthorized request you sent my way. So it could happen at the server level. It could happen at the application level. Got it. Okay. So let's say everything is going well and I get a 200, which is like, yes, this yeah. worked. You're well, a go. Most of the time. I've seen some developers out there who have put a 200 status code in their 404 pages. Don't do that. Google will punish you for it eventually. You, you, a browser <laughs> deserves to know that a 404 is a 404 or every all of this will fall apart and we all lose our jobs. Oh man. Well that yeah, sounds it's bad. Okay, so everyone make sure to properly code your 404 pages. Actually my favorite part right. my favorite part about this is the 200 code which is the, the good code, like the great code or whatever. Yeah. Okay. It, it really is just okay. Like yep. that's literally, it, it's okay. That's okay. all it is. Like okay. no, nothing's wrong. Everything's okay. That's and it. it's usually sort of, you know, colored green, whereas the other ones are colored red. Okay. So yeah. I get it. I get a green 200. The, everything is good. I get packets and these are HTML, which is an acronym for hypertext markup language. Mm-hmm. And it is literally just, <laughs> kind of it's like a word document with instead of formatting yeah. it has yeah. it has you know just a different way of applying formatting and delineating different sections and different types of of well markup <laughs> not to use the definition in <laughs> in defining it but but how does it get to look so pretty I mean, it's just I say I want to make this thing big and this thing small, and I you know put a horizontal line here. But well, how do 
That's a great question. So I was about to, I mentioned before CSS. So cascading style sheets is typically the way, but one thing that we should know is that all the browsers out there, whether it's Safari, Chrome, Firefox, Brave, Edge, whatever, they come with some built-in formatting for how they think something should look. Like even, even without a single bit of styling given to it, links will be blue and underlined and H1 will be big, you know, a couple times the size of a normal character of text. Uh, anything without any styling will be like 16 pixels. Again, going way back to when I was first getting into the web, you would have HTML resets, which was this bit yeah. of cascading style sheet code that you put in to literally strip all that away and try to like just reset everything back to, I and mean, some of them would like put it down to 10 pixels of type, which was tiny. And then, you know, you end up having something unstyling and no one could read it. But there is yeah, a, a language or, you know, style sheet. People get into a holy war based on that of if it's programming or not, but basically a way of saying, here's what an H1 should look like, what an H2 should look like, what a paragraph should look like. And you can do quite a bit there and then assign what's called a class class or you know you could do it at, at, at an attribute level and saying hey when someone marks their html with specific attributes or with specific tags give them this color give them this background this border around the border radiuses float them over to this side or that side or flow them in a what's called flexbox way of flowing content around and aligning it that is all provided through the cascading style sheet language of markup or of style okay. markup. But, it, but it's my browser that's assembling it. So is that why I use Chrome for this and then I use Firefox for that? And it looks a little bit different. Like there's something going on with Flexbox over on the Firefox version of the page, but not Chrome. That's because the browser is interpreting it in a different way. Yeah, exactly. They all have their own you know, rendering engines. Uh, what are we on? Blink or Chromium is running under the hood of the Chrome-based one. So Chrome, Edge. Is Firefox actually now? switched over to it or are they so weren't they abandoning their own rendering engine at one point? Oh, I thought that was Edge. Was maybe, maybe it is just Edge. So yeah, maybe Firefox may still be wrong. a trident. Does that sound I'll, right? I'll tell you one thing. I mean, the amazing thing about what yeah. happens when the information comes in. So you, you're receiving all of this HTML. And what the web browser is going to do, whatever the rendering engine ends up being under the hood, what it's going to do, we've all heard about the DOM, right? So we've all done some jQuery and manipulated the DOM. What that actually is, if you're familiar with computer science, is the browser, what it does is it takes all of the HTML that is coming in and it makes it into a tree. And a tree is a data structure in computer science that just, it is what it sounds like. I mean, you've got a branch and that can have as many other branches as you want. And then the bottom node in that are, those are called the leaf nodes. But it's like this big, you know, everyone probably has a good mental picture of what that looks like. But the DOM is a, a hierarchical tree of all of the HTML elements that are in there. And so the root element is going to be HTML element. And then it might have a body, a head, and then paragraphs and everything's nested. And this all gets split out into a tree. And as it's parsing that HTML, it also will see if there are any other external requests, like there's a link for this file, or there's a script tag or that type of thing. And then it will start requests for those resources too. So then we got more packets that are flying everywhere. So just <laughs> requesting one page can request a whole lot of stuff. There can be a whole lot of images that are being requested too, like those can come in too. And then if it encounters CSS, it builds something called the CSS um, which is a CSS object model which is the analog of the DOM, but in terms of styling, right? So this is a separate tree, a separate entity that exists, and it makes a hierarchy of all of the CSS rules. Like, you, you know, depending on the specificity and where they appear in the, the styling of an object and all that kind of stuff. And to actually draw this to the page, those two things are combined into what's called a render tree. 
and it combines the what is it from the DOM with the how does it look from the CSS. And then that is what ends up getting painted on your page. This is one low level uh, sweaty yoga class. Hey, you know, <laughs> I'm old enough to remember when there were browsers. I remember someone had some JavaScript that would warn you are using a, a user agent that utilizes the DOM and this web page will not work with the document object model. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That was a fun project to work on. Sounds like um, it. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of SQL injection in that project. And mm. yeah, I, I was working on this like 2009, 2010. Well, well here, yeah, I know you're, you're kind of making fun of me for getting too <laughs> down and dirty with this stuff. But I think it's important to know because once you know that the browsers are building these respective trees, you can think, oh, that means if I have tons of elements in my DOM, that's a huge tree that this thing has to parse through. And that might not be that performant. Or, oh, if I have CSS that has... Uh, just tons of rules everywhere. That's a lot of work the browser has to do before it can combine it and draw anything. So kind of knowing, a you don't have to understand exactly how it works, but knowing just that that this is happening, I think is actually pretty useful. Wasn't there previously a cool tool that you used to link to that would actually analyze your site style sheets and see, yeah, maybe it was like how, how deep your DOM tree goes and then yeah. how many different style elements there are and the complexity of your styles. Yeah. 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 Was, and yeah. I don't remember it offhand, but I'm sure... Mm. I'm sure yeah. that exists, but that's the other thing is browsers are incredibly large, complicated code bases. They do, I mean, literally, these are operating systems that are running in a window. They really are in terms of the, the amount of stuff that can be done. And then when you add into the fact that there is a JavaScript engine that is running here, that's like a, a full programming language that is being executed by your browser. I mean, it's, it's actually pretty incredible, all the stuff that's going on behind the scenes to make this stuff happen. Well, maybe we should touch on JavaScript because I heard that's a thing you know, for the web. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's why, why is there JavaScript? I mean, we've got this HTML, which is the information that I want. That's what I want. And I also want it to look good. So why do I need JavaScript? Yeah, people expect more interactivity out of a web page. They don't expect it to be just a piece of information that they read and maybe fill out a form. I mean, forms have been there basically since the beginning or close to it and links. But being able to add a little bit of code to what is happening and make it so that every single thing you do doesn't require a new trip out to the server to get a brand new piece of HTML and CSS rendered on a server. Instead, we can use JavaScript, which is a, a coding language, which has really come a long way and is really, I mean, if you were telling anyone coming up in, you know, out of a computer science of what they should learn, I would say JavaScript and then maybe Swift or something else to get, you know, to not do just the browser and, and other applications, but also mobile. JavaScript has really come a long way and from where it used to be. It used to be kind of a fun little gimmicky thing that you'd use on a website. And now it allows you to do really complex application development in web browsers, in other, you know, Node has a, a, run, a JavaScript runtime that can run basically anywhere now. Yeah, it, it lets us do basically anything, anything that's even remotely interactive on a website is probably using some or probably a lot of JavaScript. And I think it depends on what you view the World Wide Web as. So if you view it as just a collection of documents, all right, you know, I guess you probably don't need any JavaScript. But I think what people have found is that the web as an application server is actually really, really compelling because instead of just allowing people essentially to browse documents, you can create interactive experiences. And I don't mean just from a tutorial point of view or whatever. I mean, in terms of using rich media, in terms of being able to interact with 
actual software applications, e-commerce, all sorts of things. And I think that there is some tension between people who are long-term developers who kind of view the web as a way to browse documents. And they're they're generally people that if they use JavaScript at all, it's just to do a little bit of jQuery here or there to do the thing that they need to do. And then you have other people that are using full-on JavaScript frameworks to do stuff. And they view the web as an application server, like a way an HTML is just a standard that browsers happen to use. So their JavaScript will generate that. But it's almost incidental that HTML even exists. And I don't think it's an either or. I mean, I think the web is both of these things. So I think both of these things are necessary. And it just kind of depends on what you're developing. But if you're creating anything interactive, you need something like JavaScript or anything with any kind of complex logic or interaction. You need some kind of a programming language that is running in the client that the person is actually browsing on their device because then you have zero latency between what it's doing and the interaction. I mean, the, the yeah. alternative is that you could have a very simple front end, like a, what's called a thin client that then does every request goes back to the server and says, oh, I did this, give me this, oh, I did this, give me this. And you can do that, but that ends up being pretty bad for certain interactive experiences. Yeah, So, but, but why JavaScript? I mean, is it just historical? Like all our browsers can execute JavaScript. And so now we're gonna make the entire web on JavaScript, this little toy language that wasn't meant for this. <laughs> it's the exact same reason why in the United States, we measure things in feet and inches. <laughs> Not because it's necessarily the best, but it's because it's kind of what we just ended up with. And yeah, for a long time, it was the only thing that browsers would execute. And it makes sense, right? So if you're a, making a browser, you're not going to be, a, you're not going to want to write a runtime for every language under the sun. And JavaScript was built for the express purpose of running inside of a browser. A lot of the architectural things about JavaScript, both the good and the bad, were done because they wanted it to run in a sandbox in the browser. And there are lots of other languages that would be terribly, it would just be very unsuited for, for doing that. And JavaScript has evolved. It's gotten to actually be a pretty amazing programming language these days. But yeah, I mean, it definitely did start out as, as kind of a joke. Yeah. So you, so actually, since I've typed in demo.fm, I've gotten back HTML, CSS, and also a bunch of JavaScript files. Mm -hmm. Like those have been downloaded to my computer and they've probably, because Andrew coded it, they have probably been compressed and optimized to the nth degree to serve in the right order at the right time oh, and you're you're very generous <laughs> <laughs> no and so I mean, then my browser just run it runs all that it will you know put the information there style it and then execute the code that you've provided and that is called client-side javascript correct so that's the client okay so i can think i get that but What's the, the server side? Is there server side JavaScript or is that the PHP? Like what's going on I wanna, there? I want to clarify one thing and then I'll let, I'll let Patrick take this. So the vast majority of the JavaScript that you're downloading when you go to the devmode.fm website, I had absolutely nothing to do with. Yep. So the vast majority of the JavaScript that is there is either a framework or other components that other people have written. The actual code that I wrote is there's not much that I wrote. I think I wrote a, a player component and a couple of like a a little bit of code just to make the view table work and some other stuff like that. But the vast majority of the code that you have coming down the pike is not stuff I wrote. And I think that's, I mentioned that because it, I think that's very typical of mm -hmm. the vast majority of the sites that you're going to visit. You know, even if you are writing them in React or in Vue or in Svelte, where you tend to be writing application-ish things, a lot of the stuff that you're using or that is coming down the pike is either going to be the framework or a whole bunch of components that you pulled in from somewhere else and that you're using. Anyway, Patrick, so what 
is this server-side JavaScript stuff? Yeah, so I mean, for a long time, JavaScript was something that only ran in the browser, even in, in pre-DOM browsers. But yeah, I mean, I remember thinking this 10 plus years ago when Node was really just starting to come out, but man, it wouldn't be nice if we could run JavaScript not only in the browser, but in the back end, kind of use some of the same libraries and components to do things. And we're really seeing that happen now with things like Snowpack that are letting you publish the same sort of libraries you might want to use on a server out on the web itself. But yeah, they, you know, people are, are running Node or now uh, Dino, uh, a couple different runtimes that let you run the JavaScript language anywhere you want to. You can run it at a command prompt. You run a, a long running s server process, spin up an entire HTTP server the way that you would with Nginx or Apache and run that in pure JavaScript, which also interestingly lets you do that at a lot of concurrency. JavaScript, however they do that, is just very good at running things in parallel quite a bit. Yeah, so you know, you're seeing now people write all these packages of code. NPM JS is, or NPM is the big provider there of, of the Node package manager that lets people write little libraries of code, as, as Andrew said, where all you have to do is go in and say NPM require this certain little bit of code that I'm going to need rather than rewrite the wheel for myself. Someone else has written it, battle tested, and you, people can then maybe make open source contributions to it through GitHub. There, there's a whole lot out there, and it's something where I think most developers are starting to get into this one way or another, but it lets you do quite a lot being able to use the same language in your browser and in the server. At, at, you know, that's almost like the, the lazy way to think about it is instead of having to think about being good at PHP and being good at JavaScript, you can just get really good at JavaScript and be able to write things on both sides of the, the user's uh, browser as well as on your server. When I first heard about Node.js and I saw that they were they were letting people run JavaScript on the <laughs> server. I was like, what the expletive are these people doing? Like, what? This is insane. Because from an application programmer's point of view, like JavaScript is like this little toy thing. Anyone who's, you know, a JavaScript developer now, like, don't freak out at me. We're talking about, you know, <laughs> a long time ago when it really was kind of a toy to an extent, right? But it makes sense because... So many people learned JavaScript and knew it from doing a little bit of stuff they're doing on the front end, rather than having to learn a whole another language when they're having to do stuff on the back end. Kind of nice to be able to do stuff in one language, whether it's on the front end or the back end. And I think what kind of happened with JavaScript, and it's funny because it's just like there are two islands and they evolved entirely separately. Their, their, their traditions and ways of doing things would be totally different. So JavaScript, because it was client-oriented, what they started to do was make really rich, thick client stuff where you get tons of JavaScript would be in your browser and it would bring lots and lots of stuff on the front end. And especially with mobile devices that are low power and, and they've got limitations in terms of bandwidth and all that kind of stuff, they're like, oh, you know, the performance actually really kind of sucks. <laughs> so let's see if we can do some of this work on the server. And naturally, if they already know JavaScript well, it makes sense that you might want to do some of that processing on the server. And it's really about just where you're doing the work, right? So if you're doing the work on the server, you're doing it once there, and then you can transmit that to everyone that requests it. If you do it all on the client, you transmit your HTML and JavaScript from the server to the client, and then every single client has to then replicate that. But it's really a matter of where the code is running. And that's what server-side JavaScript really is. And a lot of it is kind of funny because <laughs> there are a lot of PHP developers that they're looking over at this server-side render thing, and they're just like, come on, bro. Like, we're doing this in the, the, right the beginning. <laughs> we're doing this in the 90s. Like, come on, what's the big deal? Yeah, the server-side JavaScript, I mean, those are relatively new. The examples are sort of, the frameworks are Next and Nuxt and frameworks like that that are promising to do. And they are doing well, things that PHP developers have been doing for since 1990, 
whatever. Yeah. But the big rub is PHP. Uh, all right, I'm going to say you can't run it in the front end. Technically, there are ways that you can, but I don't want to. Nope. I don't even want to entertain it. I don't want to talk about you it. Do with Wasm? No. I don't. I don't. Yes, there are ways that you can do it. There are ways That's that you the way can to get run me into Wasm. Yeah. Yeah, it's just horrible, right? <laughs> so there are certain things you can only do in the client side. So you really do want to have that kind of JavaScript stuff. And it makes sense. Like if you're going to invest in learning a language, like if you could use the same language, or I think the term is isomorphic JavaScript, it's JavaScript that will run either server side or client side and will work the same in either place really kind of makes a whole lot of sense from a maintainability point of view and from a HR point of view in terms of the people that you need to hire and what they need to know. So I think it totally makes sense the way everything evolved. That's pretty fascinating. Well, the yoga class is getting to, towards the end. We're about to enter our... Am I still standing on one leg, by the way? <laughs> I, have, I, have, I have the most incredible posture in the world. The most incredible posture. <laughs> Yeah. And, and actually, you know, we're all feeling quite zen at the moment. We've really exercised and aligned all of our chakras. And so we're about to get into corpse pose, which is the last pose that you do. But before we get into corpse pose, I just want to see if I've, I can summarize all of the pearls of wisdom that you've helpfully offered me and everyone who's hopefully feeling a little bit more enlightened. So what is the internet? It is a series of tubes <laughs> that is connect computers and machines around the world up in the sky and in the cloud and underground and connected through a series of cables across oceans and all that stuff. And I want to, <laughs> Andrew's rolling his eyes. <laughs> I want to get information about, you know, I, I want to download a cat video. So I'm sending that request in the form of packets and the packets have a bunch of information on them and they get passed along through machine to machine over the tubes that will process my request and send back and send back to my machine information also in packets that's processed on my machine that will then parse it, style it, and then deliver it to me in a human readable format on my computer. And then the cat appears and it's like, that's the magic. Yes. It's a, an incredibly sophisticated way that human beings can trade dick pics and kitty pictures. Oh. That's pretty much what it is. Yeah. And yeah, I'm obviously being flippant about it, but it is kind of funny. You think about this amazing technological stuff that's built up there. And then you look at just the comments section in YouTube and it's just this horrible <laughs> morass of <laughs> trolls and terrible people. And you're like, why do we it would, did really what all the engineering, <laughs> all the engineering that went into this? Seriously, that's the best that you can do is, is like a duck face picture. All right. All right. That's cool. Well, right. that about wraps it up for another episode <laughs> of the Demo.fm podcast. If you enjoy the show, make sure to subscribe, tell a friend, or drop us a review or a dick pic. We really appreciate no, it. No, 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 no dick pics. No, please, no. Demo.fm uh, podcast. My name is Jen Bloomberg. I'm Andrew Welch. I'm Patrick Harrington. <laughs> that, was, that was absolutely beautiful. All right. Hold on. Let me get the... Any dick pics I'm forwarding to Patrick, by the way. <laughs> I had a client once sent me one. That was weird. <laughs> Wait, really? Yeah. This is on air, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs>
And yeah, I mean, I knew just enough about HTML and CSS to think I could build a website at that point, but I had no business even trying to build one. It was for this real estate company, and uh, the guy was supposedly sending me all the headshots for uh, the employees and whatever, and sent me a headshots. Yeah, <laughs> sent me a zip folder, and I opened it up, and I'm going through headshot, 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 headshot. <sighs> and then I get to the this one, and his name was Alex, and it, it was like a glamour shots. Like this was done lying on pillows. Oh, like no. think about you know. Draw me like one of your French girls, okay? Uh, it was the most, and what I can only say is that everything was arranged in a funny way. Like the Franks and Beans were kind of on top of each. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> it was like, what am I even looking at here? Because you know, you gotta now you gotta like, huh? I, I remember. Uh, so it was art. It was not. I mean, it was a photograph. It was a photograph. Um, yeah. Did you uh, put it up on the website? <laughs> uh, well, it's funny. My aunt, speaking of HR, she was in HR at. And it's funny. Yeah, I'm trying mm-hmm. to remember exactly when this was. It must have been like very late 2004 because I eventually went on to work in HR at Bank of America for a while. And I, I'm like, hey, how would you handle this? And she's like, wow, okay. Um, she's like, I would email it back to him and say, I don't think you meant to email this to me. Can you confirm? <laughs> you, you know what I would do? I would just pretend it never happened. Ignore like it. I well, would just ignore it. I would pretend it never happened. But Jennifer... Yeah, I just want to let you know this is Patrick projecting. He's the one that actually sent it. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop the recording now. <laughs> All right, stop the recording now. Just so in the outtake. Patrick has no chance.